let's jump back into Daniel chapter 8. We have a vision, and Daniel has been split into two books, essentially in one. Chapters 1 to 6 have not been visions necessarily. They have just been those first six chapters, a narrative account of the life of Daniel in exile. He probably came to Babylon sometime in 605 BC as a teenager, maybe around 15. And now we're, we're nearing the end of the, the rule and reign of Babylon, at least by this vision. So he's writing this probably around 550. So he, he's in his 70s at this point. And he's just been given a vision in chapter 7, just kind of to jog our memories back to December. And this vision was a panorama from the time of Daniel in the 500s to the end of time when Jesus returns to rule and reign. And so when I use panorama, maybe you think of your iPhone and you take that out and you have the, the picture thing out and you try to hold it steady as you move it across the room, but I'm never good at that, so somehow John Palermo's head's going to end up on his wife's body. And that's just what panorama pictures typically turn out to be. That's chapter seven, panoramic view, going from the time of when Daniel's in exile under Babylon's rule to the next kingdom, Medo-Persia, to the next kingdom the Greeks, to the next king, the Romans, all the way till when Christ, as we just sang, returns to rule and reign. That's the panorama. What you're getting in chapter 8 today, by way of contrast, is just more of that little segment of Medo-Persia and Greek empires. So it's no longer the panoramic view, it's that, uh, now they got on the phone the, the portrait. So it gives you the nice details. You don't have to go to Olin Mills anymore for that perfect shot. You just have it on your phone. And that's really what we get in chapter 8 today. You get a portrait view of where Daniel is, but it's actually prophecy of times that are going to cover the next three to 400 years long after he's gone. And so that's what we want to see today is, is the view of history that God has for Daniel and God's people at the time Israel because we know that in just less than a decade, they're going to get to go back to Jerusalem. The 70 years of exile will be over. How excited they'll be to return and think, okay, we survived the exile. Things are looking up. And Daniel 8, sorry, friends, is saying that not so fast. They may look up because you get to go back, but they're actually going to get pretty low again because you still have these pagan kings grasping for power. And really, friends, is that not true of all of life? I mean, you exist today. No matter what you want to think about the government you are living under, they're not trying to exalt Yahweh with their everyday life. So, whatever you might think about our current state of politics in our country, we're still the same as this time and will always be until our true King of Kings comes back. So we learn from this today. What is it like to maybe have your hopes up for deliverance and then dashed really into destruction? We'll see when we get to talk about this third king today. So um, I'm just going to read the first 14 verses, the first 15, I should say, because the first 15 are the vision. The rest is the explanation. And the vision is meant to um, captivate you. 
little kids can really love this first section because their imaginations are moving and they'll see pictures of, of rams and goats in this you know, National Geographic epic battle. Whereas some of us adults who just want to read Pauline literature and the book of Romans and, and diagram his arguments, I don't need any pictures for my faith. Well, you're going to get a picture today. And it's to bring you into the vision that Daniel was given so that he, God can lift you up today, that he can encourage you today, all the way from a foreign time and in a foreign land. So follow with me as I read uh, Daniel 8, 1 to 15. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So that's chapter 7, two years earlier. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ule Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Well, we have seen and heard, haven't we? May God help us to understand it this morning. You know, there's a trite and trendy phrase, and those are the best of phrases, aren't they? You hear out in the common vernacular, especially the last few years, you want to be on the right side of history. 
It's been coined by secular elites in our day to take captive the masses as a pseudo-intellectual scare tactic. What they're saying when they say that, you want to be on the right side of history in some discussion over some uh, point of disagreement of which way our culture should go. When they're saying, well, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? When if it's somebody from uh, the culture saying that to someone in the church, it usually implies this idea of, I mean, you don't really want to be one of those Bible people who comes to find out after they've been enlightened, you know, that the earth isn't flat. So they try to scare you in this, whoa, whoa, whoa. I may be one of those idiots out there that believes my Bible, I want to be on the right side of history, of course. Please tell me, what should I believe? That's the way that history is talked about today. You don't want to be on the wrong side of it. The fatal flaw about that thinking is that to be on the right side of history would suggest that the person telling you that knows what? How it's all it's going to end. To be on the right side of it is to say, oh, I, I get where this is going and I don't want to be on the wrong side of it. Means you don't just see a beginning of something and the current way it's standing, but that you actually know with 100% surety how it's going to turn out. Otherwise, to make that claim is, is somewhat contradictory because what you're also admitting that is, you know, history is changing all the time. And so we, we need to adapt and we need to change. And so to be on the right side of history and you say, tut, tut, tut. Wait a second. So you're telling me I need to be on the right side of history and get along with you. But what about if your view turns out to not be on the right side? Then I look like an idiot for listening to you. If only there was a person that could see the thing from beginning to end. May I introduce you to said person? Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Now we have... The only person with the exclusive right to say something like, you need to be on the right side of history. The person that could say, I know the end from the beginning. None of you humans do. Therefore, none of you can say, you better change your way to get on the right side of it. Unless you happen to know the person saying, I know the end from the beginning. Otherwise, it's a fool's errand to listen to anyone out there that's going to try to tell you something that would stand in contradiction to this. This tells you what the right side of history to be on is. The one who is God and there's no other and can say from the end, or tell us the end from the beginning of the thing. Because man at his best can see. He can see. He can see the start of something and he can see how it's going and then he can try to use the information he's gathered and make some distinctions 
and see some differentiations and say it's gone like this before and maybe go like this again. That's what man can do at best. Man can see. But it is God alone who knows. And so God is not in the business of just calling out distinctions in how things are. God makes declarations and things are. And that's the great divide between man and God, the creature and his creator. That it is only God who can have a sovereign declaration. Notice in verse 10 of Isaiah 46, he gets to declare the end from the beginning. As he's calling the shot before the idea of taking the shot even comes up. He's telling you what the outcome of the game is going to be before the players take the field. In fact, before the players are even on the team, in fact, go further back, before the game that the players are going to play in has even been invented, he's calling the score at the end. That's what it means to declare the end from the beginning. That is God's providence. That's it. So there is no better be on the right side of history other than to know what God says about where everything is headed. And that brings us back into Daniel 8. That Daniel is getting a picture to start of where everything is headed. But as my first point says, the summary of verses 1 to 14, Daniel could only see something coming. And we've talked about in the book of Daniel the two horizons. What Daniel can see and say, and that other horizon line, which is what God knows and declares and is completely ahead of and is doing all things according to his own purposes. So let's, let's see with Daniel, because that word, I saw, I lifted my eyes, I observed, is all over the opening 14 verses, because all Daniel has is, as amazing as Daniel has been in this book, when it finally comes time for him to get visions, unless God tells him, he doesn't know. And he has, as we have seen back to chapter one, how did he rise to power so quickly in Babylon? He knew more than all the wisest scientists, astrologers, charlatans, whoever it was that Nebuchadnezzar could gather to try to understand what's the future going to be. Daniel exceeded them all. But all along the path, when Daniel was asked to give an understanding of it, what did he say? I have nothing to offer other than what God is going to give me. And now he's getting a taste of his own medicine. And he's not, I'm saying that in the best of ways. He can see all this and he, verse 15, seeks to understand it. He has no idea what to make of it. So let's first see what he has no idea what to make of. Let's see what he sees in verses 1 through 14. He's in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So this is two years after the first year of the reign in verse, or chapter 7. So he remembers because he mentions it in verse 1. And he's bringing us back to like, hey guys, I'm remembering the panoramic view of history, but then I get two years later, I get this other vision. And it's kind of out there too, but it's actually grounded in a lot more of reality. Look at right away in verse two, he, he mentions uh, three places, three physical locales that exist. You can Google uh, Citadel of Susa, province of Elam, and the Ule Canal today on, go, go do it after this. Don't pull, pull your phone out now. 
And you can, you can see the testimony that the Bible is reliable. It relates. These are real places. The citadel, the fortress at Susa. Now, in the time of Daniel, uh, this was when he's writing this in 550, Babylon is still the best. It's not till 539 that Belshazzar is going to get toppled back in chapter 5. So he's, um, he's ahead of things right now. And he's, he sees in a vision. It's, it's, it's not that he's there in this place. This place, Susa, it would be about um, maybe 250 miles east of Babylon. And it is in the Medo-Persian Empire, which, you know, they're not just going to get strong overnight. They're slowly building up their power and they're going to overtake. But in the meantime, this is just another uh, dot on the map. And in fact, today, it, it's shush, shush, Iran. So if you want to check that out later, and you're like, cool, shush, Iran. Uh, it actually has a nice tourist destination called the Tomb of Daniel, in case you spring breakers are looking for a place to go. Just sounds cool to me and, and one other guy. But he just, he mentions these real places. So though this is a vision of the future that is going to have some crazy things happening in it, it is grounded in reality, real places, real places on a map. So he looks up and he sees uh, a ram with two horns standing at that canal and uh, maybe it's taking a drink and he's on the other side watching this thing take a drink and uh, he notices the horns and one's longer than the other, which is probably unusual. And it's uh, this ram that then, verse 4, can go west, north, and south, and no beast could stand before it, anyone to rescue from its power, and it did as it pleased, and it magnified itself. I mean, if we were in, in this same text a year ago, I'm calling Rams are winning the Super Bowl. You know, I'm just saying that the Rams team last year, they were doing the same thing. What would have been really eerie is if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the goat came and knocked them off. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But for now, the first thing he sees is this ram. And what you, the details to know, other than the one, and um, this is the giveaway, look at verse 20. The ram, Daniel, that you saw is the kings of Medea and Persia. So um, spoiler alert, we know who it is. We also know from the last chapter that that same kingdom uh, was a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, and it was just dominating and devouring everyone. So you put those two together and you say, hey, there's some continuity there. Different animal, one's like a beast kind of bear thing, but it's on one side. As we said, could that be that Medo-Persia were two kingdoms that became one and one was a little more powerful than the other, the Persian and the Medes? And uh, here we have a ram that is the Medo-Persian kingdom and one horn's longer than the other. And it goes west, north, and south. And back in chapter 7 and verse 5, the bear has three ribs in its mouth. Is that it's devouring in those three directions? Could be. It also is interesting, you know, when you think about where, you know, the kingdom of Medo-Persia was and the direction it could go. It was, they were the kings of the east, so they could only go west, north, and south. So, bada bing, we got a match. Now, just as this ram, this kingdom of Medo-Persia, that, remind you, is still, uh, we're still 11 years out before this thing is running west, north, and south to dominate. Just as it's going to come into power, verse 5, while I was looking, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without its feet touching the ground. This goat can move. And, you, you know, you 
you use that expression sometimes. My feet didn't hit the ground. You know, like you're talking about a really a fast human being. It's like, man, he was a blur. You just, you just couldn't even see their feet touching the ground. That's how swift that this kingdom is going to be. And it comes flying out of the west over the surface of the earth with a big horn between its eyes. Comes to that ram and it's in that, that, that poor ram just wanting a drink. And this goat comes rushing with his mighty wrath. And here's verse 7, a great collision. I saw him come beside the ram and he's enraged and he strikes him and shatters his horns. Boom. I mean, this guy got blown up, as we used to say in our football playing days. I mean, he got depleted, wiped out. The ram had no strength to withstand him. He hurls him to the ground and an insult to injury, tramples on him. And there was none to rescue the ram. And you go, whoa, where did that ever happen? Well, again, peek ahead to verse 21. The goat represents the kingdom of Greece, okay? And the large horn between the eyes is the first king, and that was Alexander the Great. And then you you, you look at the account of Alexander the Great, how how swift he was. And and again, going back to chapter 7, The kingdom that came after Medo-Persia, the bear, was this leopard. And if a leopard isn't fast enough, you give it four wings. Just like how quickly this goat is going to come and dominate the known world. And that was really the tale of the tape with Alexander the Great. And you can spend the rest of your Sunday, when we're done here, reading about Alexander the Great. But, you know, you can't make this stuff up. He really is the goat when we're talking about like greatest military king of all time. You read history and they will say, because of how quickly he did it, from the time he was 21 to 33, conquers the known world. Rumor had it, tradition says, he wept when he had no kingdoms left to conquer. I mean, he was the goat. Before the goat, this is, you know, this has zero apologetic value if you're sharing your faith with people. But if you're like, long before Brady was the goat, or even Muhammad Ali said, I'm the greatest of all, in all the world. And his wife coined that for his business in like 1992, G-O-A-T, Enterprises. And that's really when it entered the main uh, language that we speak of it. LL Cool J had an album, Goat, as well. But that, I'm just saying, before that was a thing, the Bible, in its prophetic value, calls Alexander the Great the goat. So that's just for those of you who like to take pop culture and try to shoehorn it into the Bible. Zero apologetic value. It's just interesting to me. But he really was, and he really dominated that great. But look at his end, verse 8. The moment we can be impressed with it, as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. I mean, the moment he rose, he got to the top, the moment he could catch his breath and decide what's left for me to conquer, he's broken. And that was the demise of Alexander the Great. Historians still don't know exactly how he came to his end. It's almost as ignominious as this ending in verse 8. He's just broken. Was it his drunkenness? Was it some fever? Was it poisoning? History doesn't tell us. But he's broken. And he's gone. And he's done. And it's over. The large horn was broken and its place came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And so if this is uh, the Greek empire, 
that when you think after Alexander the Great's king, his sons were too young to take over. And so it was split into four kingdoms, north, south, east, and west. There's your four winds of heaven, four different directions. And, and, and under that, you had uh, the, the, the four kingdoms that came in, in north in Asia Minor, south towards Egypt and the Ptolemies, uh, west back towards Greece and Macedonia, and then the Seleucid Empire in the east. So right there in verse 9, you just you lay verse 9 over, or sorry, verse 8 over top of your history books. And again, you say, wow, the Bible, it's calling this shot 100 years in advance. It's way ahead of its time. Actually, in the time 3, 323, around that time of Alexander the Great, so now we're calling this shot 200 years in advance with precision. But what happens after this, out of this one horn, out of one of those four, verse 9, a horn grew exceedingly great toward the south. So this, this next king would have to be a king who came out of one of those four kingdoms after Alexander the Great is gone. And he tends to want to go south and east, but his ultimate destination is there in verse 9. And verse 9 is really a key to unlock the rest of this passage. The beautiful land, which is Jerusalem, the promised land. Palestine. It, it, that's, that's the illusion in this dream. It's, 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 of course, the beautiful land. It's where Daniel longs to go. It's where the exiles want to get back to. And so whoever this king is that now comes out of the Greek kingdom, mind you, there's not a new kingdom yet, is there? It's the same one, one big horn, shattered, Four come out of it. So it has to be connected to one of those four kingdoms that came after Alexander the Great and had a particular penchant to go south and east, but then end up in Jerusalem. And then we hear more about what this little horn does. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and trampled them down. So it's a, it, it's a brash, bold, small horn. Um, language of stars and host of heaven alludes to Genesis uh, 12, 15, 17, when God would talk to Abraham and say, my people that will come from you will be like the stars of the heavens. It's also repeated in Deuteronomy and Exodus that this idea that God's people are like those stars shining in the sky. And, and this king is, is going to take those people and think nothing of them and cause them to fall. But he won't stop there. What else is he going to do? He's going to be so boastful and proud. It wasn't enough like these, this, this ram and this goat to just magnify himself exceedingly amongst men. He wants to be equal with the commander of all the heavenly hosts. God. God himself. To say, I don't, I don't need the Beautiful lands, God. I don't need the God of Yah God Yahweh, the God of uh, the Jews. I'm more important than him. And I'll show it, I'll flex. Look at verse 11. This, this king removes the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. He's going to go straight into the heart of, of, of religion in this place and say, I'm sacrifices over. Sanctuary desecrated. No regard. And remember, we learned that at the beginning of Daniel 1, that when Nebuchadnezzar brings in Daniel and his young friends, it's, a, it's an entire indoctrination process, isn't it? It's to conquer that kingdom, and it's also to take those people that are now subject to you and in their minds turn around their whole worldview. Because if I defeated your armies, then I've also defeated your God. If I can overpower your kingdom, 
I'm more powerful than your king, whether it's lowercase or uppercase. So you, you get it? That, that's what this imagery is in verses 9 through 11 that brings in this idea, the commander of the hosts. Is this, this earthly horn, this little king that's growing to heaven, is going to magnify himself in such a way to say, I'm more powerful than you, your armies, your kingdom, and your God. And I'll show it by making you stop worship. I'm going to remove whatever is sacred. Verse 12, on the account of this sin, I mean, that's just pure blasphemy. On the account of this transgression, the host will be given over, all the people of God, given over to the horn, along with the sacrifice. And, and this horn will even fling truth to the ground, as in whatever it's you say you believe, nope, I'm going to trample that too. And, and that will have to perform its will and prosper. So this is pretty bad, isn't it? Daniel has got to be devastated. So he's looking in this vision and he's thinking of the beautiful land that he wants to go back to. And he's thinking of temple worship. And yet here is this king who's just going to just spit on the whole thing. So he doesn't know what to say. But verse 13, he hears a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that holy one. So some angels are talking and he overhears. And they're talking because, you know, angels long to look into some of these things. They don't know the answers to them. Scripture tells us. So these angels are having a discussion and uh, Daniel kind of just eh, leans his ear over there, verse 13. And the one says to the other, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? How, how long will, will the people be out of this land? Or they're in the land but not allowed to worship? While the transgression causes horror. So as to allow both the holy place and its people to be trampled. How long, O oh Lord? How many times in the Psalms? How long, O oh Lord? Before you answer. And then they turn and, for whatever reason, say to Daniel, I guess at some point he could have interrupted and said, guys, you know, this is my vision you happen to be in. So if you wouldn't mind enlightening me to what's going on. They say to him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. That's when it'll be over. That's when this, um, this vision that Daniel has, what he can see will come to an end. And yet, verse 15, as we now transition to the interpretation, he's seen it, and he can talk about it, and he can hear angels talking about it, but he doesn't understand it. Let me pull the car over just quickly here and just ask the question, are we any different? On your horizon line of life, you can certainly see a lot. And you can learn from the past and you can try to put pieces together and you can try to figure it all out. And you could even try to look to this. But in your own power, you're not going to know what's really going on apart from God's gracious revelation to you. One of the, the, the earlier testimony in baptism this morning in the 9 a.m. service, the young lady mentioned, I was raised in a Christian home, in a good church, went to a good Christian school. I knew what this said, or at least I thought I did. I was seeing it, but I didn't know the God of it. And for 18 years, she said she lived that way. Just merely seeing what's here, but not knowing the God who was over it all until in his kindness, she's reading the Bible in a coffee shop and it clicks. That's how God does it. Doesn't always do it that way. But I'll promise you this. It's not going to be up to you just to see it and on your own discover it. It must be given by God. 
He has to open your eyes and ears and heart. And the one who can declare the, the end from the beginning, it's his prerogative when that happens. All praise and honor and glory are to him. And even Daniel, the best of the best interpreters, right now has no idea what to do with his own vision. And nor do we, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God to us. So, let's see what God has to say in verses 15 to 27. Let's, let's get to the interpretation of the matter. So, behold, and there standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man calling to this man. And he calls out and says, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And there we have mention of Gabriel the angel. It's the first time in the Old Testament that any angel has a name for us to know. So I just add that in case you're going to be on Jeopardy next week and you get asked that question. It's the daily double. Who's the first angel to get named in the Bible when you go? I think that's how it goes. Daniel 8, verse 16, Gabriel. And the name Gabriel means warrior of God, God's hero. Which makes sense of what happens next in verse 17 then. He comes near to where I'm standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And while he's talking with me, verse 18, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Scared stiff. Terrified. Fainted. That could be his description of it. But I think it makes sense when you're face to face with the warrior of God, Gabriel. Now, somebody must have tipped Gabriel off in a couple generations when he had to show up and talk to Mary because he leads in there with what? Don't be afraid. I mean, somebody had to clue him in like, Gabriel, like you are the man for this job. You're huge. You're imposing. Just tone it down a little bit. Remember what you did to Daniel back in 550? The guy was passed out. So let's lead in with a little bit of, of, of kindness in our voice. Don't be afraid. Instead, what I like about this, he just, he touched me and made me stand upright. I want to know, was it like that? Or was it like, get up, come on, Daniel. Because Daniel's a good dude, but he, I mean, in front of Gabriel, he falls on his face, which again, from time to time, I'll mention for those who like to read those accounts that I met an angel, you know, in the Taco Bell line today, uh, I turned in there, Gabriel was... Did you faint? Did you fall flat on your face and hit it off the dashboard? Because if you met Gabriel today, that's what would have happened. So here's Daniel. He's going to get a chance to understand the interpretation. And what is Gabriel's word for him? Verse 19. Well, 17 and 19, because he, he starts in 17. Daniel just passed out verse 18. But it's, it's repeated. Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And then he kind of repeats himself. Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the, and here's another key phrase, of the indignation. Going back to verse 12, the account of transgression. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Why am I getting like real in the weeds of this? Because the, the language of this isn't talking about the end of time. What's it talking about? The time of the end. What's the time? What's the end we're talking about here? That period of 2,300 evenings and mornings. There, there's a time period here. 
that Gabriel is, is going to give an explanation to Daniel about. So this isn't, let's fast forward to the end of time and figure out who this Antichrist is at the way end. But we can say this sounds like an Antichrist type. And we also know from 1 John 2 that there is a spirit of Antichrist in the world. 1 John 4, sorry, that was 1 John 2, 18 you hear that Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have appeared. How does that happen? Well, it's just anybody, First uh, John 4, verse 3, any, any spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you heard is coming and now is in the world. So really what we get as we've come to now identify who this unknown character is that we're going to learn about in verses 22 to 25, it's a spirit of Antichrist. It's somebody that in their First off, denial that Jesus is the Son of God, denial of who God is, blaspheming him his name. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And what are, what are some of his calling cards? We, we saw them already, verses 11 and 12. Persecute the church. Try to stymie worship. Magnify himself against God. And just a pro tip today, if you are an Antichrist finder, as in like you're reading the news today looking for it, Look no further than those qualities. Who, who might be a person? I'm not telling you to really do this, but if they want to set themselves against God, if they want to put the thumb on God's people, if they want to shut down worship of God, if they want to take away truth, you got a spirit of Antichrist right there. Now, I don't know if that's going to you know, be in our time that we'll actually see it. But we, we at least know a basic understanding of what this person's going to be like. So let's get to the business at hand in verses 22 to 25, where we get more specifics from Gabriel interpreting the dream for Daniel. Um, notice in 20 and 21, he just gives a passing glance at the ram and the goat. A passing glance. To who? Cyrus the Great? Alexander the Great. And in the warrior of God's estimation, what do they get? A sentence. If you live your life for the glory of self and conquer the world, just like the testimony of baptism, if you try to get the whole world but lose your soul, what do you get? A byline of somebody that was magnified and broken and done. That's the life of anybody, no matter how significant they were. They don't even get their name listed. Cyrus the Great, the ram that got obliterated by Alexander the Great, the goat who dies ignobly. That's what you get apart from God. That's a word of warning. This is, this is the best you can get. That's, that's, that's the account from Gabriel to Daniel of how important those great men were. But now he moves into this um, conspicuous horn. Now, we already talked about him in verses 9 to 12. And now he's going to break down a little bit more who this person might be. So let's just walk through those verses. 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms. They will arise from his nation. So this is still the Greek empire. But first clue, not with the power of the original guy. So whoever came after Alexander the Great wasn't even close in power. 
In fact, if you read about this guy, he was uh, verse 23, the latter period. So t- some time's going to go on. So it's, it's not in the immediate right after him. When other sinners have run their course, here's the first thing or second thing about him. He's insolent and skilled in intrigue. He's a backstabber. He's a usurper. He didn't inherit this kingdom by his own prowess. He kind of um, stabbed some backs on the way up. Hmm. Let's add that to the list of how we identify this person. His power will be mighty, but it's not his power. He's, he's not an Alexander the Great type. He's, ex- he's going to destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform. He'll even destroy mighty men and holy people because he's, verse 25, shrewd. He's deceitful. You don't hear those words associated with Alexander the Great. He was just powerful. He was impressive. He dominated. I mean, he looked you square in the eye and squashed you. Not this guy. He's a snake. But you know what? He's just like the rest, isn't he? Verse 25. He'll magnify himself in his heart. He'll destroy many while they're at ease. He's he's taken out innocent civilians. And then back to the opposition in verse 11 to the commander of the host of heaven, he'll oppose the prince of princes. Again, language of esteem, exaltation, he's opposing God. But like the demise of the other two, he'll be broken without human agency. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings. There we have it, friend. Remember, we're not talking about the end end times. The vision of the evenings and mornings. 2,300 evenings and mornings, 2,300 days. That's what is being told is true, Gabriel says to Daniel, to keep the vision secret. So um, here's the thing. Now, because we haven't been tipped off to this person by name, as we got in 20 and 21, you kind of put together what you have from your Bible and then history around the Bible times, and nine out of ten Bible scholars would say that the person described in 9 through 12 and 22 to 25 is a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV who we don't get his name. I I get that. So am I going to go to my death saying it's Antiochus Epiphanes IV? No. But I would say, man, it's hard to to not see what he did in the time he ruled from 175 to 164 BC and how he particularly attacked Jerusalem and persecuted God's people there, estimated killed anywhere between 10 to 50,000. It's hard not to line his life up from a historical account, extra-biblical account, from the book of First and Second Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, intertestamental period, you line all that up and you go, man, I think we've got a match. What were some of the things that correspond between Antiochus Epiphanes IV, his life, and what we hear here? Well, one of them, um, just look at verse 25. He'll magnify himself in his heart. He, he's magnifying himself, verse 11, equal to the commander of the host. So um, history can... Pull out the coin that he had minted to his own honor when he was ruling from 175 to 164. And on it is his picture and uh, says, God manifest in the flesh, King Epiphanes. I think that's magnifying yourself. You make money, you put your face on it, and then you call yourself God manifest in the flesh. It's, it's a bad start, but it's a good start in the sense it's getting us right on the right path. What else did he do? 24, he destroyed mighty men and the holy people. 
Um, verse 10, he grows up to the host of heaven and causes the stars to fall and tramples them down. Well, as I mentioned, he persecuted the Jews. Why did he end up there? Because um, he did try, as it said, he went to the south and east and then the beautiful land. Verse 9, he tried to go down to Egypt and by that point, Rome was growing in power and there was a Roman general down there that basically said, look, you can stay here and try to conquer the Ptolemies, but um, as soon as you beat them, you're going to have to beat me. So you may just want to be on your way. So kind of like a pouty little kid. He knows he can't win. He goes up to Jerusalem and, and he rules and reigns there for about six and a half, seven years. 171 to 164. Why do we date at that? Because in 171, uh, he removes the high priest and puts in his own pagan guy named Jason, a real Greek name. And then about halfway through that time, 167-ish, is where he removes uh, the altar to Yahweh in the temple and sets up one to Zeus and sacrifices a pig there. And so that would be potentially verse 12 on account of the transgression, removing the regular sacrifice and even fleeing truth to the ground, verse 12. If you were caught with the Torah in your house, you were killed. If you were caught obeying the Torah, circumcising your children, you were killed and they were killed. So he's throwing truth to the ground and he's throwing God's people to the ground. And how did Antiochus Epiphanes IV come to his own demise, broken without human agency? Um, Second Maccabees records what they would say it was a pretty gruesome death that had no human explanation for it. Just like he was struck by the hand of God and, and, and just died a terrible physical death with no explanation how and why. So, there you have it. This is, this is the view of who this could be. But why does it matter to Daniel? Why does God knowing this is coming matter to Daniel? Well, in the last verse, it matters less to Daniel for himself because he knows he's not going to be there for it. But it still makes him sick and exhausted and astounded because he had such a burden for who? For Israel, God's people. He had a love for God. What, what, what do we take away from that? I mean, friend, it's not just about what you might be going through. Do you, feel, do you feel the indignation burning in you when you see God's name profaned, when you see God's people persecuted and attacked? Or are you like um, King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, where he's told what is going to befall the generations after him and Israel, and he's basically like, okay, that, yeah, sounds good. Read Isaiah 39. It's the exact opposite of how Daniel feels in verse 27. Daniel's not going to be around for this 300 years to come. But he's sickened by it because of his love for God and God's people and God's worship being removed and God's sacrifice being blasphemed. It's like when Paul says, the daily burden of the church is the hardest thing you can throw at me. You feel that way about the church? Or is it just about you? Not saying you're not going through your own thing. But when we really know that we, we're, we're growing in our love for the Lord and, and we see ourselves as his beloved children, we're his children and there's others that we care for and we want to bear their burdens. And you see a glimpse of that in Daniel's response. And that's where it ends. Forewarned is forearmed. 
that Daniel's going to write and record this in 550 and then it's going to be there for God's people to read long after he's gone when Israel has gone back to the land and like in Nehemiah, the walls are rebuilt and the temple's rebuilt and everybody's cheering but then they've got this one chapter and they're going, mm. do you think it's true? <laughs> I mean, this doesn't sound so good for us but that's God's grace in our lives, isn't it? We just don't read the parts of the Bible that talks about us victory and everything going our way, but we read the parts of the Bible that say there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and persecution, and then the end. Well, welcome to 2023. And that's to say nothing about what Israel's going through today. Have you ever Googled Israel hit news, and saw something like, everything's awesome over there, peace in the Mideast. It's not. In fact, I just tested it yesterday. And there was a bombing. Same as it's always been. This, this, Israel's still not out of the weeds of that. And it's not going to end until Christ returns and reigns. So how do we live in light of that? That's kind of where I want to end. How do we live in light of this? I just called it, how to, what can rams, goats, and horns teach me about my future? I got three words today to kind of put in your noggin as you leave. And they can land where they land. The first is a word to the wicked. And I'm not calling you wicked. I'm just saying a word to the wicked. And that word would be repent. Repent while you still have time. Repent while you are at the peak of your own prominence. Because if you don't, you are but a breath away from how it ended for Cyrus, Alexander, Antiochus Epiphanes. I mean, just, just go back and, and follow the trail of that word. They magnified himself. That right at the peak of their own greatness, 8-4, this, this ram is going anywhere it pleases and it magnifies himself and while he's observing, boom, in comes the goat and that ram is broken. Verse eight, the male goat magnified himself exceedingly and as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Verse 25, through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart, but he will be broken a word to the wicked today to the and I want to I want to specify that to those who are caught in the deadly twist of self-magnification turned in on self you are the beginning middle and end to your story and you got no place for God in it just like these characters and you can be magnified and lifted up and be doing really well today. And then you can be broken. And how do you get out of it? You could be so twisted in. In your own pride today. That you don't know how to get out of it. And the only way out of it is to see a person greater than you. Christ will get you out of that. 
If you are so twisted in and impressed by yourself and into yourself and trusting in yourself and amazed by yourself, only Christ can untwist it. By you being given a glimpse of the only glorious one from beginning to end. See someone greater than you today. Because that's where the chaos is when it's you. It's not you versus you and you versus the world. It's you ultimately versus Christ. And only one can be on the throne. I found a poem this week contrasting who would be the goat, Alexander the Great, with the one who is beyond any description, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, by a guy named Charles Ross Weed, uh, written 100 years ago. And nothing else is known about this guy, but he wrote a great poem, and I want to share it with you. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died at Babylon, one died on Calvary. One gained all for self, and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. One died, when the Greek died, forever fell his throne of swords, But Jesus died to live forever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek lived to make men slaves, the Jew to set men free. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. The Greek gained all this earth to lose all the earth in heaven. The other gave up life on earth that all to him be given. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. Put your name in that. There's only one name that completes that poem, and it's Christ's name. And every single one of us outside of Christ is in opposition to him. You may not be an Alexander. doesn't make a difference, though. He's either on the throne in your life, King of kings and Lord of lords, or you are no matter where you are today. But to be as as high and lifted up as he is, then to turn and say, (laughs) I'd die for you. I'd give my life for you. I'll stand in your place and take God's wrath and give you my grace. What more could he give? What more did he give? But you have to recognize the end of yourself in that. And see yourself in need of him. And cry out to him today, be merciful to me, the sinner. A word to the wicked, repent. A word to the worried, remember. Remember what? Remember God. That's what Daniel, that's what carried him through his whole life, was remembering God. Remembering the promises of God. even, Even in the midst of his sickness and worry, You could not take Daniel's faith and pull it away from him because he knew God was with him. As we saw last week in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you to the end of the age. He was with Daniel to the end of his age. What do we need when we are worried and sick and exhausted and astounded? We need to live by faith in the God that we can remember. 
rather than be perplexed and pulled down by all the fears of a future that we don't know. What what do you know of the promises of God from Scripture about your future rather than be dominated by the fears of the future with the information you don't have? And that's what dominates you, isn't it? It's the fears of the information you don't have about tomorrow. Just hold you in its grip. And all you can do to abate that and, and overcome that is to say, I remember you, God. I trust you, God. You've always been there for me. Why would you stop now? Go back to the promises of God. And then a final word to the wise. Return to your life. Remember God, and then the last word today for the wise is return to life. What do I mean? Adam, that is like the least profound thing. Verse 27. In the midst of his exhaustion and sickness, and he's blown away, and he has no understanding. Well, look at that little phrase. Then I got up and carried on the king's business. Return to your life. Remember who God is and what he's done and get back to living. That's what Daniel did. I mean, was he, was, he was busted emotionally. Some might say paralyzed by it, but he didn't let it stop him. And what do we gather from that, beloved? You can be shocked, you can be scared, you can be stymied, you can be sick, but you can't stop living. So he says, go back to what you're doing. Get back to living. Because if you really do remember God and trust who he is, you can put your foot in front of the other and get out of bed tomorrow. That despite present circumstances, God is in control. A lady once asked famous Christian dead guy John Wesley if he knew that he would die at midnight the next day, how he would spend his last 24 hours. He pulled out his planner, he looked at it, and then replied to the woman, According to this, I would preach this evening at Gloucester and again at five tomorrow morning. And after that, I would ride to Tewkesbury, preach in the afternoon and meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Martin's house, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire myself to my room at 10 p.m., commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down to rest and wake up in glory. So in view of what we see the future holds, And in view of what God knows your future holds, what are you to do today? Live a holy and zealous life for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for its grace that visits us in our need. It's a means of grace to us. That we would not have those means without you and without this word. And you've given us your spirit to understand what's in front of us so that we are not left confused. We, in an amazing twist of how we have your revelation completed, we are not left like Daniel was, unable to put all of it together and then to be exhausted and sickened by it. But we can be strengthened actually for what's ahead of us because we know you are with us, Father, Son, and Spirit. What a gift of grace. So may we leave here strengthened by the way you minister to us and have ministered to us and your spirit ministers through us in your word this day.
Thank you, Christ, for your kindness and grace to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.